today we're going to go ahead and conclude uh, the six-week series that we've been on talking about extravagant generosity. And uh, let's just jump in. I've got some things that I want to say as a good closure to where we've been and we're wanting to go. The text is right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to look at the last three verses that we didn't get a chance to look at when we looked at this text three weeks ago. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you're just joining for the first time, what Caitlin and I did for the last 10 minutes gives you a good perspective sort of where we've been for the last five weeks. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And remember the context? The context is Paul is going around collecting funds to support a struggling church in Jerusalem as they're experiencing famine. So he's going around churches that he's planted in Asia Minor and collecting funds to help this church. And so we find him writing, encouraging these folks to remember the essentials when it comes to the issue of money and stewardship. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. And now we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme generosity, uh, poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Now, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and knowledge, and complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one had has, not according to what he does not have. And then verse 13, 14, 15. Oh, we're going to sort of park ourselves for today. I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. Verse 15, as the scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Verse 15, Paul is quoting Exodus 16. Do you remember Exodus 16? I'll tell you what happened in Exodus 16. The people of God out are in the wilderness. They've been set free from bondage to slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and they're wandering in the wilderness, which meant that they couldn't sustain themselves by agriculture, normal means, or hunting. So what does God do? Do you remember? God sent what? Manna. 
God sent heavenly manna. And the people of God got up every morning and they gathered manna. That's how God provided and took care of their needs. Now, here's the thing. Gathering manna, use your imagination, is a physical activity. Which meant that some people had the capacity to gather more or faster than others. But here's the interesting thing that happened and God clearly commanded. He said, here's what I want you to do. When you gather the manna, I want you to come back and I want you to pool it. So that the families that are not able to gather as fast or as much would have enough. And those of you that were able to gather would also have enough. Now, here's the other interesting thing. Remember, what happened to the manna if you hoarded it? It rotted. And it spoiled. Now, let's be very clear. Paul is alluding to that incident in the context of stewardship. Which means he's saying there's some principles there that could be drawn out from you and me about our perspective towards wealth, possessions, and finances just as Israelites were able to learn from that experience in the wilderness. And here are two. Here's the first one. Put it up there. You must look at the money that you earn as much as a gift of God as the manna was a gift to the Israelites. You must look at the money that you want to earn. Think about this. Think about this. Of course, you had to go out there and work to gather the manna. But let's be really, really clear. It was God who provided the manna out there to be gathered in the first place. It would have been utterly ridiculous for an Israelite to go, I worked really hard to earn this manna. If there was no manna, As a gift of God to be gathered in the first place. It doesn't matter how hard you worked. And yet we've said this for five weeks. When it comes to wealth and money and possessions. Often our perspective is. I worked hard for this. So I'm going to do what I want with it. And the question that we need to wrestle with is. Are you an owner or are you a steward? A steward says all of this is a gift. The mind that I have to work is a gift. The opportunities that I've had is a gift. The family I grew up in is a gift. The circumstance is a gift. Can I just ask? I've been been dying to ask for five weeks. How many of us could honestly say. Had it not been for circumstances beyond my ability that God orchestrated. I would not be where I am today. Come on now. Does anybody really inside here in this room today go, everything that I have had nothing to do with God and everything to do with me, my smarts, my effort? Here's the second thing that we learn. And this is a a little graphic. Hoarding money can fill you with spiritual maggots and rot your soul. I'm just being graphic to be, you know. Think of the illustration of the Israelites. And you know, this took them a while to get on board with this, right? And not like the first time that God said it, they believed it. There were some people who said, I don't know if it's going to, I don't know about the whole rotting thing, so I'm just going to keep it to see what happens. And the very next day, what they found was rotted manna. Here's two ways in which hoarding wealth and money and possessions can rot our souls. Number one, if you spend on yourself, if what you spend on yourself, if what I spend on myself far exceeds our basic needs, it could rot our soul. I'm going to say that again. If what we spend on ourselves far exceeds our basic needs, and let's be honest, in America, how we define basic needs is totally skewed. 
But if what we keep far exceeds our basic needs, it will rot our soul. Peter, what are you talking about? Let me just say this. I don't have a lot, just a minute or two. Is it not true that we're most alive when we live for something greater than just ourselves? Is it not true that when you and I live for a cause, live for a purpose, live for something beyond ourselves, it makes us better. It changes us. A life spent for itself. A life spent just for itself. For our own desires. For our own agenda. For our wish list. Begins to feel really small over time. And over time, a sense of insignificance sets in. Why? We're not making a difference to anybody. We're not making an impact on anyone. Is that you? Is that me? Do we live our entire lives for no cause bigger than me and my needs? Do we live for no other cause larger than me and my desires? And my plans? If so, over time, we start to feel small, insignificant. When there's nothing greater than just me and my own needs. Secondly, money that we keep for ourselves. If it's way beyond the amounts that other people keep. Has the potential to our soul. If the money that we keep for ourselves is way beyond what other people keep. Way beyond what other people keep. That has the potential to rot our soul. And again, these are themes that we've hit on. But let me just really hammer away a little bit today. Do you know that verse? Even non-Christians know. The love of money is the what? Root of love. What we don't know is, do you know that that entire context begins with this verse? 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great. Say that word. Gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That word gain in Greek literally means wealth. It literally means wealth. And so when Paul says uh, godliness with contentment is great gain, he literally says it's mega, it's great mega wealth. And what Paul is saying here is godly contentment, godly contentment. He said, what is contentment? Contentment is the ability that you and I have, regardless of what's going on out there in the world, to be completely at peace, completely at rest. It's the ability to look outside at whatever is going on and saying, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. Contentment. And Paul says, that right there is great wealth. The ability to look at the circumstances out there, to look at whatever is going on, and to completely be at rest, completely be at peace and saying, I'm going to be all right. He says, that right there is great wealth. Anybody restless here this morning? Anybody have money in the bank, but absolutely no peace in your heart? Anybody here kind of reached the pinnacle of your career, and yet you go home and you go, I wish I had more time for my family. I wish I had more time with the people that I love. (laughs) And the amazing thing is the word content that Paul uses here is what the Greek philosophers considered to be the highest virtue. 
I said, there's nothing greater than an individual who has inner peace that's completely devoid of outside circumstances. So that no matter what is happening out there, you can smile at the storm. Anybody want that? Paul says, that's great wealth. That is great wealth. See, Paul knows that for many of us, church family, the drive and accumulation of wealth to more and more is to feel safe and secure. We think that is what is going to keep us safe and secure. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with folks in our church who said, Peter, I grew up in a good church environment and my parents were, they tithed faithfully, so on and so forth, but man, they just saved and saved and saved and saved. What is that all about? And a lot of times, often, I can't control what's happening out there. But this is an area of my life that I can control. And this is where I'm going to find security. This is where I know that I can manage outcomes. I've been saying this for five weeks. We are fooling ourselves if we think we can control circumstances and manage outcomes. Do you know how exhausting that is? And we try and try and try. This might happen, that might happen, but it doesn't matter because I'm just going to save and hoard and save and hoard so that I can be secure. By the way, I just thought about this. Imagine if you're talking to one of the Israelites and you're hoarding and you're going, you know what happens the next day? You go, I know, I know, but you know, you know, I, I, I just, you never know about tomorrow. And somebody goes, you know how he delivered us from 400 years of slavery? Yeah, no, I saw that. Do you remember the whole parting of the Red Sea thing? Do you remember? What? Yeah, I saw that. Do you remember how he guided us to the pillar of fire by day and a cloud by, by day and, and the pillar of fire? By, yeah, I saw that. Do you remember how for the last 10 years he's given us every day? No, I know. But I don't know about tomorrow. That's what we sound like sometimes. He set us free from bondage and slavery. Oh, I know that. He's inter- he secured eternity to be with him forever. Oh, I know that. He's called me to make a difference. In- oh, I know that. He has given me all that I could possibly. I know that. He has provided. Oh, I know that. Well, why don't you trust him with tomorrow? Because you never know about tomorrow. So I'm going to hoard. <laughs> and Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen, This is so... Appropriate. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust. Or worse, stolen by burglars. Verse 20. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? And Jesus is saying this to you and me. It's obvious, isn't it? That the biggest savings account in the world can't stop traffic accidents. It's obvious, isn't it, that no matter how much you save, he can't stop cancer. It's obvious, isn't it, that no matter how much we try and control our lives and do what I need to do to care for me, that we can't control our children saying, I want nothing to do with God. Money can't buy you happiness. Money can't buy you security either. It's an illusion. Jesus is literally saying, no one could break in on God. Trust him. 
God is only love, security, significance that we can't ever lose. God is the only absolute certainty in all of life. Can I get an amen? The only absolute certainty. Otherwise, where Jesus said in verse 21, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. I'm going to say this. A lot of people that I've met think that if they made more money, their self-doubts would go away. It doesn't. I've told you guys it before. Some of the wealthiest people I know are some of the most insecure people I know. People go, if I had more money, my relationships would go better and my relationships would go smoother. Some of the most, and I've heard stories from you, some of the most toxic family dynamics have happened as a result of what? Money. Some people go, I wouldn't worry if I had more money. Actually, you'll worry more. Why? You have more to lose. And Jesus says, and Paul says, you want security. It's not dependent out there. You want to be able to look out and smile at the storm. He says this, know Christ and know that you know Christ. Know Christ. And know that you know Christ. Paul in Philippians 4, 11, It's the other time we find the word content. He says, I am not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. For I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says this verse that we so take out of context. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's in knowing Christ and knowing that I know Christ that I can be content whether I have a lot, whether I have little. Is that you? Is that me? Is that us this morning? Is that us this morning? I love what Martin Luther said. He's a Christian. Is somebody who gets up every morning and says what? With an incredible sense of wealth and says, God, you took everything I deserved and now I get everything you deserved. I have incredible wealth. I'm an heir of the world. I'm an heir of the Lord of the universe. And he also gets up every morning, not just with an incredible sense of, sense of wealth, but an incredible sense of security. I am secure in Christ. I've been meditating on Romans 8 this entire week when he says, hardship's not going to separate me from Christ. Suffering is not going to separate me from Christ. Famine is not going to separate me from Christ. Death nor life is not going to separate from me, Christ. There is nothing in all of creation. And then I thought about this, because some of us sit here and go, I am able to separate myself from Christ. My sins, my flaws, my issues will be able to separate from the love of Christ. And the Bible says, nothing in all of creation, are you and I part of creation? Are you and I part of creation? Yes. And Paul says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate me from Christ. I am secure. Is that real to you? I'm not in control of the future, but the one who is deeply loves me. And that is where I find my security. You want to be secure. You want true peace and rest regardless, Paul says. Know Christ and know that you know Christ. Let's get back to verses 13 and 14. 
Because the, 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 the theme for today is generous community. As I end this, I want to talk about what it means for us as the body of Christ. And Paul says in verse 13, 14, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with those who, you, who uh, when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. Now, I, I, I just want to say this up front. What I'm going to talk about will seem so foreign, will seem so uh, outrageous, will seem so, you're talking about people who live in America. I know that I have a tall challenge, but I need to preach God's word, okay? And I need to be faithful to it. Okay, so even if it's difficult to grasp, I need you to hang in there with me today. Because here's essentially where we want to end. We want to end with Paul and Jesus and what they say about why we could be radically generous. And here it is. He says, you and I could be radically generous and not fear the future in terms of what we do. Because not only does God have our back, but your church community will have your back. I'll say that again. <laughs> Paul is saying, here's why you shouldn't be afraid to be radically generous in giving to God's causes. And don't have to be afraid of, am I going to have enough? He says, not only will God meet your needs, he says, but when the time comes, your kingdom community is supposed to take care of you. I know. It seems ridiculous. It absolutely seems ridiculous for us in America to go, there's no way I'm going to do that. Then you have to somehow wrestle with the words of Jesus. And he said these things like over and over again. When he says in Mark chapter uh, 10 verse 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left, say the following with me, homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, verse 30, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Say with me, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I read that passage every Sunday. We do baby dedications, and I get up here with the cute little one, and I go, this is the wonderful part of entering into the kingdom family of God. That is, when you enter the kingdom family of God, you may leave some of your biological parents and children, family, so on and so forth, but you get new ones. And the kingdom of God, you get kingdom brothers and sisters and uncles. And it's, we all smile and go, hmm, that makes us feel really good. But you can't go, that's a powerful, powerful minder about you get a family. And not go, but he also talked about fields and homes. Jesus also said, when you enter this kingdom community, this is how counterculture and revolutionary it'll be. You guys ready? He says, it's a kingdom community in which you don't just share family members and become uncles and aunts and spiritual moms and dads. He says, you also look at your possessions radically and saying, what I have is yours and what you have is mine. He says, a kingdom community. He says, when you come into the kingdom, when you come into the kingdom, and you get this kingdom family, kingdom community, this radically different countercultural family. You don't just get new family members that you call your brothers. You also get possessions. I, I, Kimmy, can I ask why you're crying? 
Say it again. It's very true. If you're like Jonah for the first time or a handful of times, and I have to keep myself from getting emotional because this is, this is literally happening in pockets of our church. And some of you don't know about it. Tom, you know about it. This is happening in pockets of our church where people, despite what America says and goes, you make it, you keep it, you earn it, pull yourself by the boots. A group of radical kingdom revolutionaries who go, can this be true of me? Where I'm looking at my house and my resources and possessions, not my own. But it's here for you. And so I can give radical, I mean, You need to be part, Jesus saying, of a kingdom community that has so radically humbled you that you're not afraid to ask for people's help when you're in need. And let's just be real honest here. The reason why you and I don't like to ask people for need is because of our pride that says, I'd rather be in position to give because it keeps me in control and has power over you. So I'd be spiritual and give. It takes utter humility. By the way, the foundational beginning point of our Christian life starts with you and me acknowledging we are needy. So this whole, I want to do everything on my own. I can take care of me is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel has also humbled you, but it's also set free people from enslavement to money and resources and wealth and saying, I'm not going to live for this for my identity security. And so I'm free to give. By the way, in case you're going, that's crazy, man. That happened? That like actually happened? The answer is, yeah. <laughs> that's what set the Roman Empire ablaze. Is when they started the church, the early church, actually doing this. So we're just going to look at that short text, ask three questions, and then I'm done. And then we're going to have communion. Acts chapter 4 is where we find that, you guys. Check that out. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Kimmy, you're going to have to kind of get yourself together, okay? Because I've got, got to preach the rest of this sermon, okay? I love you, sister, but you know, you get me emotional, so you're going to have to hang in there for a little bit, okay? All right? Okay. We have folks in our church that take in people for seven months at a time and just allow them to live. I... Do you know what would happen to this entire city if this was set ablaze on the fire? Acts chapter 4 verse 31. I was going to say, don't get me started, but I've already started, so I've got to finish, okay? Acts chapter 4 verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Everybody say shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. How many of you guys have extra rooms in your house where nobody like lives in it? I, <laughs> you're afraid to raise your hands. Some of us do. How many of us have homes for our cars? It's ridiculous perspective, Yes? And what we have and how much we hoard in this country. Okay, I got to continue, sorry. Verse 32. 
All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions with their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that they were no needy persons. There were no needy persons among them. Hey, new community, there are no needy persons among you. Can we say that? Uh, from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold the field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Give me like two minutes to say something that is shocking to American Christians. You ready? These are people who are not giving from income. These are people who are giving from their assets. These are people who are not going, I'm giving 10% of my bank account. These are people who are going, I'm going to sell stuff that I own. I'm going to sell stuff that I enjoy. I'm going to sell stuff that I've cherished. I'm going to sell my possessions. In other words, they're going, I'm going to stop at some 10, I'm not going to stop at some 10%. I'm not going to ask what is a good percentage. They're literally going, following the words of Jesus, I am not going to just give from income and go with the percentage. They're saying, I'm going to lower my lifestyle so I can give more. I'm going to change how I live so that I can give more. I am going to, Nate is preaching for me. He just said, they're giving out of their net worth. That's exactly what's happening. And you wonder why the Roman world looked at them and go, what in the world are they doing? Who does that? These are people that are giving out of their assets and not just their income. Do you notice the second thing? The second thing you notice is that this is a church, and this is so hard, but I need to say it, with socioeconomic diversity. Do you notice that? Do you notice that they're in one place? There are people who have homes to sell, land to sell. They're rich. And then there are people for whom just having a meal, just having a meal, and the next meal is a challenge, and yet they're in the same place place worshiping. And the amazing thing is, if you read this in Greek, when, 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 Paul, when Luke says they were one in heart and mind, he deliberately uses the word for friendship, the philosophical language of friendship. You go, why is that important? Because Aristotle, Aristotle said there is no way that there could be that kind of social economic sharing among different classes. It doesn't happen. That kind of economic share could open happen among social equals. Wealthy with the wealthy. Poor with the poor. I said, there's no, no, it doesn't. And yet when the Holy Spirit came down, it obliterated socioeconomic barriers. Walls came down. Can I ask you something? Is that happening here? Is that happening here? Our socioeconomic, I say this every time we preach on the issue of race, ethnicity. It's one thing to sit next to someone who looks different from you. Are you doing life with them? It's one thing to sit near pews of folks who are poor, who are homeless, socioeconomically far different from you. Are Are we doing life with them? What is so remarkable about a church where wealthy people do relationship with wealthy people? Nothing. What is so remarkable about people who are like each other 
doing life together. Nothing. What is remarkable is when the outside world says those two groups of people are not supposed to do life together. I'm just going to say this. The core mission of our church is to be an alternate city. There are two Chicagos. There's two Chicagos racially and ethnically, but also there are two Chicagos when it comes to socioeconomic class. There's a rich Chicago and a poor Chicago. They don't worship together. They don't do life together. They don't raise their children together. They don't go to each other's birthday parties. They don't pray together. They don't serve together. Is that happening here? Church, is that happening? Are we serious about our mission? Are you and I serious about our mission to be this radically alternate city? And I've said this for two, three weeks. If we are not doing life with people who are not of a different socioeconomic class, we will have a skewed, twisted perspective of what greed and materialism is. We will not have an objective perspective about how much you spend and how much you save if we are doing life with people who are making just as much money or more than us and spending just as lavishly. Are we any different? Are we any different? First, we see that they were radically generous. Two questions. Why were they radically generous? And then lastly, we're going to ask, how can we be radically generous? And we're going to take communion. Second question is, so then why were they radically generous? Two words. Everybody say this with me. Shaking. Come on, guys. Shaking. I know you're hot out there, but I'm like 10 times hot up here, okay? Shaking (laughs) and filling. People usually notice the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, I'm going to talk to you. But they sometimes forget about the shaking. But it was the shaking that led to the filling that led to radical generosity. What is it about the shaking? It scares them? (laughs) It was called the theophany. Scholars use this word, theophany. When the physical manifestation of creator God came on earth, there was always shaking. There was always trembling. By the way, the first encounter and experience with God ought to be a shattering experience, not a fuzzy experience. It is only when we are shattered without being devastated that we can live into our true self, as Richard Ward says, and die to our false self. If you are unwilling to encounter this holy, other transcendent God that leads to a shattering experience, you may not be transformed. And this happens all over the Old Testament where God comes down and they're shaking and trembling. Exodus is one example Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp, say this with me. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain, say with me, trembled violently. There's a word in the Hebrew that describes God. It's the word glory. And the word glory in Hebrew is kavot or kavat. And it literally means heavy or weighty. Glory of God is heavy or weighty. 
Whenever the Bible talks about the glory of God, the presence of God, it's talking about the heaviness of God, the weightiness of God. Laws of physics says when an object that is heavier than water is dropped on water, what happens? There is a water quake, a shaking of that water. When an object that is heavier than ice, that has more glory than ice, is dropped on top of the ice, what happens to that ice? It what? It shatters. Why are the people trembling? Why is the mountain trembling? When the holy, uncreated one comes in contact with creation, there is what? There's trembling. When God's holy, weighty presence made himself known in creation, there's trembling. There is shaking. And when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's not just about ounces and pounds. The psalmist had it right when he said, there is none like you. Who else compares to you? What did the disciples encounter in Acts 4? What did the disciples encounter in Acts 4? They have just been in the presence of the glory, the weightiness, the heaviness of God. And they have just encountered, church, ultimate and infinite beauty. Ultimate and infinite love. Ultimate and infinite wisdom. Ultimate and infinite power. You wonder why were the disciples not afraid and filled with power and boldness? Think about this. If you come in contact with ultimate and infinite power in God's presence, what power on this earth would intimidate you? What power on earth would impress you? The context of this is they've just ended a prayer meeting. Why did they pray? Because John and Peter are in jail. And the Roman authority said, if you continue preaching, we're going to kill you. And as they're walking home from jail, they see wanted posters of their faces on the walls. And what do they do? They kept preaching. He go, what was going on? When people all of a sudden said, aren't you afraid of the Roman Empire? I think they said afraid of the Roman Empire. Why? I've just been in the presence of somebody who holds Caesar's life in his hands. They were filled with power and boldness because they had just encountered and been in the presence of who was ultimate and infinite. Oh, I, I, I thought about this. Why are we afraid to be more bold in our witness? Why are we afraid to be more bold in our witness as testimony, as testimonies of Jesus? I'm going to be honest because I'm afraid. I fear people's verdict. I fear people's approval, uh, disapproval. I fear that. You know what I need? I need to find myself being shattered and shaken by the presence of God because I'm going to tell you something. God fears nothing and no one. You encounter him, we fear nothing and no one. Can I get an amen? Do you need more boldness in your witness? You've got to encounter the one who says, I am not only powerful, I am the source of all power. Anything in the world that has any power, I gave it to them. You've got to encounter that person. Jesus, Lord Jesus. The other thing that this would do, 
Lord, I repent. I will repent of my cynicism. Anybody here cynical? Anybody grown cynical of our city? Anybody grown cynical of our marriage? Anybody grown cynical of our world? Anybody grown cynical of our addictions? Anybody grown cynical as we look at the world around us and we go, there is no hope. What we need is a fresh encounter in the presence of God where we walk away saying, he who has ultimate power and authority is with me. Guys, guys, guys. Guys. Some of us need to go home today. I'm serious. You know who you are. We need to repent of our cynicism. Repent of our... How can we encounter the uncreated one and walk away, look at our city and go, there's no hope. How can we look at anything, having encountered him, and go, there's no hope. Help us, Jesus. It wasn't just the shaking, though. There was the filling of the Holy Spirit. And every time I talk about this, I go, don't think of it as being zapped. And the Holy Spirit fills you. What does the Holy Spirit do? Remember Jesus' own words himself. John 16, 14. He will glorify. There's that word. He will what? Glorify. Say what? He will glorify me. For he will take what his mind declared to you. You know what the Holy Spirit does? See, see, come on up. I want to illustrate this. So I'm the Holy Spirit. And this is easy. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes. He comes to you because he's with us. And he goes, Carlton, look at ultimate beauty. Look at ultimate wisdom. He points to Jesus. Jesus. He points to Jesus. And look at ultimate wealth. Look at ultimate power. And then, and then, the Holy Spirit takes what we know in our heads and he does what? He makes it come alive in our hearts. Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. He comes to you. He points to the beauty, the power, majesty of Jesus. He goes, look at Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Look at ultimate beauty, ultimate power. And then he comes and he makes it real. And makes it come alive. He makes it effectual in our lives. Why? Because it's one thing to know about God's power. It's another thing to be shaken by God's power. It's one thing. It's one thing to know about God's love. It's another thing to be melted by it. It's one thing to sit here and go, I know about goodness of God. It's another thing, as David says, to taste and see that he is good. My question to you, is it real to you? Is it real to you? His experience of who God is and what he is about. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, and whispers to you, ultimate beauty, does your heart go, yes. When he comes and goes, ultimate power, does your heart go, yes. Are you melted? Are you transformed? Are you changed by the filling of the Spirit? Or are we just walking in and out of here, knowing about God and failing to experience His power, His love, His goodness? Because you know what happens? You glorify something 
when you find it beautiful for what it is in and of itself and not what it does for you. You and I glorify something when we stand in awe of it, when we marvel at it, when we are blown away by it simply for what it is. We don't go to the Grand Canyon to feel good about ourselves. We don't go to the Niagara Falls when we need a self-esteem boost. We go to the Grand Canyon to simply stand in awe and go, wow, that is breathtaking. We glorify God when we simply stand and go, God, you are breathtaking. You are beautiful. You are majestic. You are amazing. Not for what you do, but simply for who you are. We glorify God when we, with our lips and with our lives, simply stand in awe of him. And we say, I find you beautiful and amazing for not what you do, but simply for who you are. Holy Spirit says, he will glorify me. That's why it's impossible, do you see, to encounter Jesus. It's impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not be generous. How can someone, think about it. I don't know why I'm shouting this morning. Actually, I know why I'm shouting this morning because I'm preaching to myself. How can someone... Who has glorified God? How can someone who is glory, how can someone right now who is standing and saying, you are the most beautiful, you are the most amazing, you are the most worthy, you are the most incredible thing in the entire universe, and I am awed by you, I am floored by you, I am in love with you. How can anyone who does that and not be generous. How can anyone who does that say, look at their position and go, well, that's my identity. That's my significance. That's my security. If you look at things and go, identity, security, it's because you are not glorifying Jesus with your heart, mind, and soul. If we would stand in awe and say, your, your love is real. Your power is real. Your beauty is real. You uncreated one who I live for. That person, there is no way that they can walk away and go, I'm going to find my security and wealth. I'm going to find my identity and wealth because you have it in Christ Jesus. That's why the second thing that you see about the church is that they were not just characterized by great power and boldness, but they were great, characterized by great grace. Great grace, God's grace was powerfully working in them all. And two things. An experience of God's grace makes you generous with people. Can you guys all look up here for a second? I'm almost done. Why is it the encounter of the Spirit of God makes us generous? And what do I mean by generous with people? I'm saying it makes you more patient, more loving, and more kind with people. Why do you think the early church was characterized by unity among class barriers? Because they died to their self-righteousness. They died to their judgmentalness. They died to their arrogance. They died to looking at other people going, if you would only. The Spirit of God comes 
And once you have been washed over by the presence of his love, you look at other people and you're kinder with them. You're more patient with them. You're more, if you are self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental, you need the presence of God to wash over you. It didn't just make them gracious and generous with people, but also made them generous with their stuff. It touched their wallets, not just their personality. It touched their stuff. It literally says that no one was in need. A church where people are so kind, so patient, so loving towards one another that instead of waiting for people to come and ask them for something, they're looking for opportunities. They're looking for ways. They're looking for ways to give. The early church, generous with people, resulting in generosity with their stuff, resulting in changing their world for Jesus as the world looked upon with awe. Couldn't explain it. I saved this message for last of this sermon series for a number of reasons, as you could imagine. But when I talk about in the next minute how we become radically generous, these are two things that I want to be thematic for the rest of the year, not just as we end this sermon series. There are two things that the disciples did and there's two things that we need to do. First, is they prayed. Do you know that in the midst of the capital campaign, we held a 24-hour vigil? And do you know that like 75 people signed up to pray around the clock? And I said to Lisa Sung, who was our prayer coordinator, I said, we're going to do that like two more times the rest of this year. Is that good news? Because you know what? Ain't nobody going to convince me that prayer didn't make a difference in changing and working in people's hearts. Because you know what prayer did? Prayer, what it always does? It aligned us with God's agenda and God's will. Prayer is not intended for us to ask God what we want. Prayer is intended to get us to a place where we're asking God, what do you want? Prayer is not intended to ask God to be engaged in what we want. Prayer is intended to bring us to that place where we're going, God, I want to be involved in your activity. Prayer is not intended to give a God a list of things because he doesn't know. Prayer is intended so that we could be at a place where we could say, God, your will be done, not mine. That's what prayer does. Our church needs to pray. We need to pray. Secondly, and they're related, prayer then led to them making themselves a living sacrifice. Another word, for surrender. Come on up, CC. Surrender. What is surrender? What is surrender? We go back to the weight of God's glory. You and I have plans and we have goals. We have plans and goals as you walked in this morning over these areas of our lives, our future, relationships, marriage, our children, our finances, our jobs. We have our plans and goals. What is surrender? Surrender is saying, God, you 
will have more glory and more weight in my life. Your desires, your will, your plans will have more weight in my life than my own desires and my own plans. Because if our posture this morning, church, as we end this series, is as we look at these areas of our lives and go, I have goals, I have plans, and I need you to come and bless it, that's you and me going, I have more glory than you. I have more glory than you. If you and I, we said this from the very beginning of this journey, this is not about three months of talking about social media. This is forming our entire lives for the next 30 years. I am telling you, if you and I come today and we go, I've got plans of these areas and I need you to come and bless it. I need you to come and around it. I need you to be aligned to it. That is us literally saying to the holy uncreated one, I will have more glory in my life than you. My agenda is more weighty than you. To live the life that God calls us to requires you and I to come to him today and say, I will offer myself as a living sacrifice, which means not just once, but daily, moment by moment, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Your name, your fame, your goals, your plans, your agenda will always have more glory, more weight than mine. And it's not just my money. It's my career. It's my children. It's my family. It's everything. I'll never forget what Mike Crable said to me. And I want this. He said, I'm learning, Peter, that it's not just about making Jesus our provider, because he is, but it's coming to realize that Jesus is my ultimate provision. He's all that I need. He's all that I need. before we take communion and pray for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us as a perfectly appropriate prayer just know what you're praying when you pray Spirit of God come and fill me in the same breath you're praying glorify your name glorify your plans your agenda your wishes that's what we're praying as we ask 
him to come and fill us. your finances think about your children think about your future think about your health think about your career think about all the areas where some of us have lived and asking God to come and bless our plans and agendas so with boldness and courage I pray that as we prepare hearts for communion Yeah. 